Hello there, everybody. Sean speaking. I just wanted to alert you that the main body of this episode was recorded while we were on vacation, actually, and uh, we recorded it in our hotel room. The sound quality isn't going to be, say, the level of this intro you're hearing, and in fact, when we did the initial tests (laughs) before we actually finally recorded the actual episode, uh, literally seconds before, everything sounded great. Uh, It didn't turn out that way this time, unfortunately, but it's still very listenable. There is going to be a 10-minute stretch, roughly, where you're going to hear a little bit of a buzzing and uh, our voices are going to sound a little bit metallic. I apologize for that. I, what happened on, our, on the recorder is sometimes if the switch isn't fully in uh, the proper position, it picks up a lot of buzz. I tried to filter that out as best as I could. There might be some other background noises here and there that you're going to hear, uh, such as the way of recording on location and not in your home studio that has broadcast quality microphones. Ah, well. Anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. I'm Lisa. And I'm Sean. We're a married couple, and we like to talk about the The Beach Beach Boys. Boys. You always are tongue-tied. You never know how to start this. Didn't you learn anything in radio broadcasting school? Well, I usually have a set list or something that I could, like, start with. Excuses, excuses. Hey, I'm new to podcasting. I've only been doing this six and a half years. Yeah, really? So I I don't know. So, anyway. Oh, hi, everybody. My name is Sean. No, 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 no. You sound half dead. Seriously, you're not going to start. Hi, everybody. My name's Sean. Yeah, that's better. Welcome to Two Next Podcast. Welcome to Two Next Podcast with me and my delightful co-host. Oh, is that me? I hope so. Well, you, you know, you're not feeling delightful, are you? Well, I'm right by the ocean. Because that's why you didn't ask. Well, yeah, you should be. Yeah, we're we're on location today. Again. Um, again, just as we were with episode zero, and I think there's another one we did on Haven't location. we done more episodes while we've been on vacation than at home? Possibly. <laughs> possibly. And, you know, we have that little studio set up at home, too. So, um, how have you been, dear? Well, lovely. Good. Because I'm by the ocean. Because you're by the ocean. Yay. And where we are, we're near an international airport as well, so there might be an occasional airplane passing by. So, um, yeah, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Yeah, we're recording this in an old year, but it's going out in a new year. So we have uh, that to look forward to. And um, anyway, should we just get right into our topic? Oh, yes. Or would you rather, is there anything else we need to talk about? Or? Yeah, our topic. Yeah, our topic. I mean, yeah, there have been so far two Brian Wilson albums that just came out within weeks of each other and a documentary, but we're going to talk about that at another time. Because we, we need to really dig in and get our thoughts together with those, as opposed to these things that we have been discussing pretty much as long as we've known each other. So, what, what do we have on topic for well, this episode? Well, our topic is, and we need to say this together to get the full effect. So, oh, yeah. So, it's about the Beach Boys. What, what the, the hell, hell were they, they thinking? thinking? <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Yeah, as Sean said, we've been discussing a lot of these topics for a very long time over many dinners, car rides, and other times that we get into discussions about the Beach Boys. In fact, 
a number of these topics I know were discussed at Ocean China Buffet, which was a Chinese buffet restaurant. And we used to go there sometimes like once a week, maybe. Not that much. Really? I mean, no. it felt like we went there a lot. No, but, but every would, single time we were there. But we would get into discussions about the Beach Boys and... And the Beatles. To- every single time, the Beach Boys and the Beatles. But it was kind of like we would discuss, you know what's great about the Beatles? And there were always many answers to that. And then we would be like, you know what's wrong with the Beach Boys? And there would be many answers. <laughs> I mean, Especially this time period, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s. There really was a lot of frustration in the fan community, I believe, because during that period, there were a lot of things rumored that eventually happened, but not for years after we first heard about them. Yep. You know, talking concerts, releases, whatever. And it it just felt like the fans' chains were being jerked a lot. So we were kind of ticked off. <laughs> so, But many of these topics are still out there, still being discussed, still valid. So we decided to present them. And as always, these are our thoughts and opinions your mileage may vary. Mm-hmm. I know your mileage will vary on some of these things. <laughs> Not so much may. Because I know I'm the odd one out on a few of these. Some of these I came up with. Some of these Lisa came up with. Some of these we both came up with. So where should we begin? Well, why don't we start? Oh, by with- the way, before we even begin, let's just have this little disclaimer. I mean, yeah, the Beach Boys, we love the Beach Boys. But we also have to acknowledge when they screw up. Or, or at least in our minds as fans when they screw up. We are also going to have a corresponding episode of things that they did right. There's still a Beach Boys entity out there 60 years after the f- their first single was released. And we're recording this, by the way, on the 50, uh, no, the 60th anniversary of the X Records release of Surfing and Luau. So uh, look in your history books if you want to determine when, we, or, or look at the Look at our show notes page at uh, 2next.fab4it.com. Uh, or is it 2next Podcast? I don't know the old... One of those will get you there. But, yeah. So, what should we start with? Well, why don't we start with the first topic that you came up with oh, when boy. we were putting our list together. Do you remember what that is? I, I do yeah. remember this one. And, um, all right. This is something that has been kind of a bug up my butt since... Early 1998. Continuing just Mike and Bruce, the only Beach Boys, continuing to go out on the road as the Beach Boys. To me, that is uh, that is an artistic mistake. To me, that is inaccurate. To the world, maybe not necessarily so. They're out on the road under that name. Really, let's, let's be real, because... A bunch of lawyers told them it was okay. That's what it all boils down to. I mean, yeah, there were some agreements reached among all the corporate partners with uh, Al and Brian and Carl's estate. But still, as a fan, as someone who treasures what the Beach Boys did as artists, taking these guys, these two guys, and think about the songs that they perform in their shows how many of them were actually on the records, that the, the songs that they were performing when they recorded them? For the most part, 
just one of them, really. But I do have to say this. I, I have no problem with Mike and Bruce going on the road performing Beach Boys songs and using the phrase Beach Boys to describe themselves. And I have nothing against them making money. It's what they do for a living. But I do not like them calling themselves the Beach Boys and telling the world, the basically the oldies radio crowd, hey, we are these guys that you hear on the records. Mm-hmm. Because they're only a tiny fraction of it. And um, I think it was the Endless Harmony Forum. Somebody said, well, what about how uh, Mickey Dolenz and Michael Nesmith went out as the Monkees? Here's what I have to say to that. The official name of that tour was the Monkees Present the Mickey and Mike show or something mm-hmm. along yeah. those lines. How the venues chose to build them thats or what they could fit on the marquee, that's another thing. So they were not officially going out as the monkeys, but hey, it's the monkeys. Our organization is presenting these guys. If Mike and Bruce had called it something like the Beach Boys present Mike Love and Bruce Johnston or, or the Beach Boys present such and such a band, the singers of, of, of a lot of the songs, great. I'd even probably be okay if they just called themselves Beach Boys without the definitive article mm-hmm. the. That would be a little, con- you know, the general public, I don't think, would even catch on to that. So that's... No, but, sure, but... And it's also, you know, when you look at the monkeys, I mean, I don't know this, but I have to wonder if something in the licensing and, and whatever in the past stated that in order for it to just be called the monkeys, there had to be three of them. Yeah. Just because in 1986, it was Davey, Mickey, and Peter... You know, when they first were out on the road, but they were allowed to call themselves the Monkees. But the that was then This Is Now single, which only had Mickey and Peter. Yes. I think it said Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork of the Monkees. Like they, I mean, the Monkees logo was on it. Yes. But I think they had to make that distinction because it was just two of yeah. them. So I have to, I mean, I don't know what happened. I know there were, there was a tour... At one time, I think in the maybe the ni- late 90s, early 2000s, where it was just Mickey and Peter. I'm not sure if they had to make a distinction then, or maybe it was Dave. I don't know. Some combination well, where I think it was only two of them. But, I mean, I just have to wonder if they, if it was, as long as it was three of them, they could still call themselves the yeah, monkeys. Because what's interesting is when Mike, Peter, and Mickey toured for for a couple of rounds, Mike dropped out. Well, I don't know if he so much dropped out, but they did another tour with just Mickey and Peter, but that was still called the Monkees. However, they did have Mike join over Face or, or Skype. Yeah. So maybe because that was... But anyway, well, let's also, not go off too but, much Well, on just one more thing I want to say, too. You have to realize this is a different situation. You know, and I, it's good to bring in this example just for the people who go, well, what about this man? that I think it's different situations all over the place because Peter Tork, Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, and Mike Nesmith did not create the Monkees. They did not create that name. They did not create that logo. That was at first owned by Columbia Pictures, and then Rhino bought the rights to it in the 80s. So they never owned it to begin with. It was not theirs, and they were using it with the licensing of whoever owned it. Yes. So, you know, when we're talking about the Beach Boys, we're talking about 
the ownership of things on a more personal level, that yeah. this was something that was their creation. So that's where you get, you know, probably in regards to the monkeys, it was probably a much cleaner and easier thing to deal with because you weren't dealing with family. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't dealing with a corporate entity in that. Or at least a corporate entity that they owned. Yeah. Like brother, you know, BRI. Yeah. Because when the monkeys started going back out on the road in the 80s, you weren't dealing with members who had passed on. I mean, Mike Nesmith chose not to participate because he had other things going on. And we know he did show up for one concert near the end of the tour. But like, it, it was probably just still a much more like, okay, the lawyers agree to this and this is what we're going to do. It was probably a much simpler thing than what goes on with the Beach Boys, where all of this happened in the wake of Carl Wilson's passing. Yeah. And there's been, you know, much discussion over the years about this and is it right, is it wrong? And one faction is like, well, Mike Love, him and his representatives, his lawyers and whatever, did the right things. They filed the, the right paperwork and permissions and it's not like Mike stole the Beach Boys' name. Of course it's not. not. They, were, it's they not, all agreed. Like it was all, it was all on the up and up. Well, I don't know if they all agreed. I think Al just like sat out on that. Okay, but the fact but, you know, is, still, but the fact as is, as an organization, Mike did everything he was yes. supposed to mm-hmm. do, one hundred percent clear and legal. And also, the fact is that regardless of who has the Beach Boys' name, they all still profit from it. Or so at least Brian. I don't know if Al still does. Okay. Well, yeah. And perhaps Carl's estate as well. Yeah, I'm not sure. But but the whole thing is, yes, Mike did everything legal and on the up and up. Sure. The question is, should he have? Yeah. I mean, t- people say, well, it's legal. Well, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily right or a good idea. Because I know at the time there was a lot of, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but it felt like there wasn't. And I mean, granted, there may have been concerts scheduled that I, I don't know if they canceled any shows since Carl passed away in February. That may have been a time where they weren't the the band wouldn't have been out on the road because that's kind of a low time of the year for concerts for a lot of acts, especially since a lot of the Beach Boys touring schedule are amphitheaters, festivals, yeah. a lot of outdoor venues in the summer, but. At the time, it felt like, and I mean, I'd have to look this up, but it felt like there wasn't a whole lot of downtime, you know, or kind of, kind of like a mourning period before picking up on Beach Boys shows again. And I think that might have upset a lot of fans. I, I really don't remember if there was or not that. That I wouldn't. I don't think it personally wouldn't have affected me. And, of course, you got people say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all about the music. Well, then listen to the records. <laughs> and there were people who, who said, as far as I'm concerned, the Beach Boys ceased to exist after Dennis died. Mm-hmm. So there are people who go way beyond that, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. And there have been other bands where, I mean, geez, the Rolling Stones lost Brian Jones in 1969. Yeah. And they still kept on. I mean, how many drummers did the Grateful Dead lose? <laughs> or was it keyboard players? I don't know. The, or or I don't am know. I think or am I confusing? You're thinking with, with spinal, spinal tap, tap probably. 
No, I, I mean, I mean, the Grateful Dead lost Pigpen, I think, in the early 70s. Bands lose members and they still carry on. But... When the band that you're putting out is a skeletal representation of what it once was, well, I got a problem with that. Well, the thing is, I mean, when Dennis died, there was still a Wilson in yeah. the band. And I think that's what upsets a lot of people is that with no Wilson, and Mike doesn't count. No. <laughs> Even he, though he is he's technically. kind of sort like well, his mother was a Wilson. I mean, he and, technically yeah. is as much Wilson as as the Wilsons. He just happens to have a different last name. <laughs> but still, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for what it's worth, we did go to one of the Mike and Bruce shows. And I will say this. I spent that entire show wishing I was not at that show, but honestly, there was nothing wrong with it. I mean, everybody was pretty tight. Mike sounded good. Bruce sounded good. Scott Totten, he sounded freaking fantastic as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I'm really, I really admire that and guy. And the place was, if not sold out, close to it. Yeah. It was, it was at uh, Ravinia, which is a amphitheater. For those who don't know, it's an amphitheater north of Chicago with a massive lawn surrounding it where people can bring their own chairs and tables and set up their own little encampments and, you know, enjoy the show under the stars if they don't want to buy a ticket for under the roof. And it's a wonderful place to see a show. So there, there were thousands of people there having a really great time, which... I mean, hey, I'm never going to fault people enjoying Beach Boys music, but to us personally, it it was lacking something. Yeah, and and the thing is, people were like, "Oh, you know, Mike's band has been so much better lately. They they have a much more varied set list that appeals to people who like deep cuts." Not that night they didn't. We we had it was two hours of AM radio oldies and Mike's most recent side projects, and that was it, really. And uh, I will, and just to kind of uh, piggyback on what you were just saying about people having a good time, I remember when we were still living in New Jersey, I was talking to someone who said, "Yeah, I just saw the Beach Boys last night." And of course, I was. That was back when I was really like super. And basically, I didn't want to hear anything about Mike Love back then. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was one of those. Mike, and I, and I just preached. That's not the Beach Boys you saw. That was just my. And he said, "Look, I know it was only one or two of the actual guys, but the fact is, it was still a fun show." So yeah, I don't. I can't begrudge people for that. Like even longtime fans, you know, if it's fun, it's fun for you. But to me. Personally, for me, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth that that they're calling themselves what they... Let's face it, they're not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like there are other ways. Well, like, look at what Al did when Al struck out on his own after Carl died and after he yeah. wasn't able to obtain the official license. He called himself Beach Boys Family and Friends. Well, is it that he wasn't able to obtain it, or he didn't actually make any effort I'm to get a sure. license? I'm not sure. I really don't know. I think it's that he didn't actually make an effort. I really effort. don't know. And the thing is, yeah, and that, that really bugged me, too, that he was being sued because, oh, these, these people are being told it's the Beach Boys, but they show up and it's not the Beach Boys and all this. 
And the thing is, as far as I was concerned back then, they were more the Beach Boys than Mike's well, band yeah, was. because Al had pulled together a number of people who had been Beach Boys touring band members during their touring heyday. Yeah. He had um, Carney and Wendy Wilson and... Um, he had Matt with him, and, yeah. Matt, and Matt was touring as part of the Beach Boys backup band in the 90s. And then, Let's see, uh, Mama Cass's daughter was... Oh, in Elliot, oh, that's Elliot right, yes. I forgot about that. Well, she, she was a friend, because yeah. she, she's like Carney's best friend, oh, I, I mean, because, I mean, it was, they were... I think the problem was a lot of venues were calling them the well, Beach that was, Boys. Well, that was the thing. I remember reading about that, that there was a... Somebody went to see, like, a Beach Boys family and friends show, and the promotion, like, the posters and everything simply said the Beach Boys. Yeah. And basically they were not using I guess the artwork that would would come from Al's people. Yeah. They were making maybe using like maybe they had reused old Beach Boys posters. <laughs> I mean they could have if yeah. they had a template already, they may have just added the new information and that show and I think a couple others where Al's people actually got in trouble for that, yep. even though they had give, supposedly given the venue the correct information, the venue chose to use whatever, or they the venue just called it the Beach Boys. Like yeah. nobody really cared about the distinction, but BRI got wind of it and got upset. Yeah, and because they didn't want. They didn't want, like, oh, what was it the Temptations where there were two different acts with different people yeah. out on the road calling, calling themselves, themselves the Temptations? The temptations. Yeah. And that may have even been around the same time. Oh, so it was like, it was a lot longer ago than so, that. So, well, I think they were trying to avoid that situation. But also, and I think really what it all came down to it, and from what we've heard from a very reliable source first of all mike did not sue al over it bri sued al mm-hmm. over it yeah and um i'm just i'm just saying what our source told us i'm not i i don't know for i i can't 100% say for sure i'm just saying what we were told but i think the problem they had was the fact that the phrase beach boys was used yeah. period it didn't matter that it also said family and friends yeah because the fact is those two words put together Al never sought the proper licensing to do that. And, they, yeah, like and we were Al told had, that if he had, then that wouldn't have been a problem. Like if Al had called it, say, you know, Al Jardine's Beach Party, or maybe if it was even like Beach Party featuring Al Jardine of the Beach Boys, like maybe something like that would have been okay. But I can see how that, as we saw, that title got too easily confused. Sorry about the, all the noise. I was moving my chair around on this uh, floor here, but anyway. Uh, but you think if they had come up with something a little bit better, like say, like how there's Credence Clearwater Revisited, Revisited. and how the various names that the Jerry Garcia list Grateful Dead go out as like Dead and Company or... Well, they call themselves the other ones yes, once, I think. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And there's been a couple different names that they've used where it's still, people still know what they're getting, but they know it's not the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Because without Jerry Garcia, there is no Grateful Dead. No. And and something you said earlier kind of reminded me of this was back when still 
a majority, at least of online fans, were not okay with Mike and Bruce calling themselves the Beach Boys. So this was like maybe late 90s mm-hmm. when somebody saw a picture of the Beach Boys being used to promote this new Mike and Bruce Beach Boys show. And it was one of those pictures from 1977. It might have been the one that's on the back of MIU album. <laughs> and this person took a screen grab of an email that he sent to the venue to correct the graphic Explaining, well, while Dennis Wilson died in uh, 1983 and Carl Wilson died recently, Brian doesn't tour with them anymore and neither does Al. So here's a more accurate representation. (laughs) So it was just Mike and this tree that they were posing in front of. And considering Bruce wouldn't have even been in the (laughs) band, Bruce was not in the band back in the band until like 1978. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But, well, it's also like you see Beach Boys concert promotion now and they have pictures of you know like this would be in the promo material i i know i've seen this where it's mike and bruce yeah and the members of their band yes and i mean you know no fault to the members of the band but they can't go someplace and say i'm a beach boy like they're not corporate members of the beach boys they are not voting members of bri and It's just like going back to when Mike and Mickey were touring in the promotional materials, it was just Mike Nesmith and Mickey Nolans' faces, not all the other people that are out on stage with them. Because there's a difference between the people you're there to see, and again, no fault to these other musicians. They are wonderful people and hardworking people and talented people and fully invested in putting on a fantastic show. But... They're not the ones being promoted. It's just like when Paul McCartney tours. You're not going to see in the promotional stuff Abe and Rusty and Brian and Wix. Because you're there to see Paul. And that's what the promotion is. But yeah, but the Beach Boys promotion, if you only show two people, that's not going to be believable. Well, of course not. (laughs) So they got to have their backup band in the pictures. But again, with other artists, it is believable. Like, it is believable to just see Paul McCartney's face on well, the poster. That's be- well, yeah, it's even because Paul McCartney know, is not a band. It is saying, it is saying you are seeing Paul McCartney. It's not saying you are seeing other people. Okay, I get but, you're but if you're saying, oh, we're going to show you the Beach Boys. Um, there are only two of them, though. I thought there were, like, more of them. <laughs> so they, they kind of have to have, like, then again, okay. John Cowsill and Scott Totten and whoever else is in there. But let's be fair, going back as far as the late 60s, there were a hell of a lot more people on the stage than just the actual Beach Boys. Well, yeah, but you can still have yeah. just pictures of which Beach yeah. Boys were on there, and it would still look like yeah. it was all the Beach Boys. So so, so I think half hour is enough of uh, yeah, babbling about that. So let's see. Hopefully less in editing. <laughs> so what next? What next? Here's something that that um, we did not discuss, but I just want to throw it out oh. there. This doesn't deserve a lot of attention either. What? A really bad decision. Smart girls. All right, I'm going to let you take this. Yeah. I, to be honest, I have never even listened to it. You're a much better person because than a lot of that, us listen. That is that is a corner of Brian's output that I just stayed away from. Yeah. So I'm going to let you take that. Yeah, I am a I am a full-fledged Brianista. I'm he's my hero. He's my idol. But 
I'm going to be honest. If he if he screws up, he screws up, and he screwed up with smart girls. I'm sure there might have been a little bit of uh, <clears throat> nudging from somebody else he was working with at the time, aka um, Eugene Landy. But still, really, you want to hear Brian Wilson rap ever, ever? No. And uh, before someone says, well, that's unreleased. Actually, no, it isn't. It was released as a promotional cassette single, and it was played on the radio. I first heard about it courtesy of Dr. Demento in 1991. He played it a couple of times on his show, including when Brian was an in-studio guest. So, yeah, no, 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 no. And I, I totally get... The me- I mean, it's a good message. It's an anti-sexism message. But <sighs> having to actually mention breasts in the lyrics and dropping in awkward samples of Beach Boys songs and trying to manipulate those together. And, of course, what's the last message that Brian gives us? Beauty is great, but big brains are awesome, dude. I wish I were making that up. Brian, God bless you. I'm so glad you're there making this music. I'm not glad you were there making that music. That's all I have to say about smart girls. Good. So what, what, else, what else do we have? Let's move on. All right, something that I know I brought up in our discussion last night when we were coming up with our list. Something that... Oh, wait. And I, well, actually, there's kind of two things I think go together. But one thing is that over the years, and I mean, going back to the 80s and probably even further, is the severe lack of merch out there. You know, I just think back to the 80s when I started buying my own stuff, going to the Sam Goody store that was in Mammoth Mall in Eatontown, New Jersey, pretty sizable record store. And there was also another store in the mall called Record World. But Sam Goody, I remember at the back of the store, they had a pretty significant rack of T-shirts. Yes. And they also had a great selection of posters. I mean, in the 80s, you had a lot of items for current acts. You could go get a Guns N' Roses shirt or Metallica or, I don't know, Bon Jovi. Like, you could buy a lot of stuff from current acts. But also at that time, that's when the 60s nostalgia wave was huge. So you could buy a shirt with the Doors logo. I bought a a shirt with the Doors, well, Jim Morrison, but it said the Doors on it uh, back in uh, 1992 at Musicland, which was owned by Sam Goody. You could get The Who. You could get Rolling Stones. Bands from the 70s, like the Eagles. You could get an Eagles t-shirt if you wanted. And you could get posters for your bedroom wall of different acts, both current and past. And of course the Beatles. How could I not mention the Beatles? Yeah, there, were, there was no there paucity was, There the is no end to the Beatles merchandise. I had some of that stuff, believe it or not. And I think a lot of, <laughs> a lot of especially the 60s groups that were still either finding continuing popularity or a renewed interest thanks to MTV and radio stations and things like that they probably look towards the Beatles as to how to merchandise themselves, how to have items out there, things for people of all ages to buy. 
even buttons and patches, because in the 80s, that's when you had your Levi's denim jacket that whether you were a guy or a girl, people put buttons on things, sewed patches on, you put them on your backpack at school. I mean, these were very popular items. And even though the Beach Boys were out there, the Beach Boys were touring, they were everywhere. They had a number one hit in the 80s. They had hits that weren't as great, but California Dreamin', I mean, that had heavy rotation on MTV. I don't remember what it peaked at, but it was out there. Get Your Back was a not terribly low-charting song. But, I mean, the Beach Boys were out there, but yet you couldn't find anything. Not a t-shirt, not a button, not a poster. I mean, I would have thrown down my money for anything I could find, but you did not have that. And I mean, even in, um, there was a period of time, several years in the 80s, that another mall near me had, because I'm from New Jersey, there's a mall every five seconds. There would be, around the holidays, there would be a pop-up in an empty storefront in the mall that would sell a lot of promotional materials that I guess were either things that record companies were trying to get rid of or, you know, it was all brand new items in excellent condition. And I got several monkeys posters from that, which one of them I still is still on our bedroom wall Mm -hmm. promoting uh, then and now. You know, it was something that was made for to be put up in a record store, but I was able to buy them. And I had one for uh, that I got. That was probably 86 that I got that. I got another one in 87 to promote one of their records that was out that year. But even in a place like that, I never saw Beach Boys promotional materials being sold. And I mean, you would think, oh, nobody's going to buy Beach Boy stuff. But I mean, if people buy Monkey stuff, logic would tell you, okay, there's an interest in the 60s. Why wouldn't people buy Beach Boy's materials? And this problem still continues to this day. You still rarely find items anywhere. If you do, most likely it's something that's independently made and most likely not Licensed. Yeah. Hey, the first Beach Boys t-shirt I ever had, I got in the fall of 1995, I believe, and it was a smile shirt with the front cover and the back cover. The next Beach Boys t-shirt I got, I think, was the one with the Brother Records uh, thing on that. And they were made by, by a by fan. Gre- by Greg Larson, yeah. rest in peace. So these were not yeah. licensed items, but yet this person made very high-quality materials and we plunk down money for them because I mean it's the same reason why people buy bootlegs because they're not available legitimately like if we could have gone into a store in the mall and bought a smile t-shirt we would have we would not have bought it from dear Greg Larson no matter how good his well actually when they eventually did put out a smile t-shirt I wasn't happy with it it because it didn't it wasn't as good it didn't have the back cover on it and it wasn't like a nice heavyweight cotton like he used it was okay but you know but still I get your point it's like yeah, I mean the fan made stuff was still better. I mean you can and you can I mean it is a little better now. Like for example, you can get that Help Me Rhonda shirt that Brian wore in the seventies officially. 
I'm pretty sure that there is an officially licensed version of that. Well, now. yes, because it was it was part of Brian's tour merch. A couple oh, that's years right. Ago. It was his tour merch. Yes, tour merch. it was actually sold. I want to say during the like 2016. That's Pet right. Store. Okay. So that was legit. But the thing is, I mean, yeah, you can find old tour merchandise on the web if you do some searches it's not like it's just out there yeah ready to be plucked and even when i went to my first beach boys concert in 1989 and i was so excited i'm like i am gonna buy everything they have but i didn't because they hardly had anything i think they had maybe i was so disappointed they had like maybe three t-shirts i remember they had like remember the velcro wallets in the 80s oh yeah you know what i mean yep didn't have one but yeah i definitely remember those they suckers. had they had like a cheesy velcro wallet and and like the t-shirts weren't even like cool concert t-shirts with like all the dates on the back that everybody likes to get because i remember i bought a shirt it just had like the beach boys logo in pink it was like a photo of a surfer, but almost like zoomed in to where it was just like a lot of dots, like almost not yeah. pixelated, but it was I, very almost like kind of artsy, Yeah, but it wasn't like great. And I mean, to be honest, I hardly even wore that. And it had the same design front and back. It was just kind of, it was very disappointing. And the thing is, not only do they have to kind of ramp it up on the merch, but also consider... Is this merch something you really need to have surfboard related? Like the smile sessions, did there did they really need to have a surfboard <laughs> put out for that? Come on, man. Yeah, for like it was like some crazy amount. I, mean, I think like, it was autographed too. Yeah, but, but still, still, it was some crazy amount of money. Like it cost far more than if you had just bought an equivalent surfboard in the shop. I think it was like over, well over a thousand dollars. Well, they had to ship the sucker too. We're like, well, yeah, but I mean, a six foot surfboard is not, you know, unless it's like top notch, it's not going to run you like well over four digits. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, that was just kind of, huh? <laughs> and if anybody from Brother is listening to this, I'll tell you what, I will be the first in line to buy this if you ever put this out. The t-shirt that Brian got for his 34th birthday that says, I'm a f***ing genius. You do, I'll be your first customer. Um, you do know that that was actually sold, right? When? It was a while ago. It was sold by um, Urban Outfitters. I did and not I know think, that. And I think, I want to say, that may have been just a shirt that was... I mean, it's not a Beach Boys shirt, Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't something, like, that it was custom-made for Brian. I think it was an exist... For all I know, it could have been, because that that was around the time that it was really popular to just have those, like... They had the t-shirt kiosk in the mall where they would just literally make you, like, an iron-on shirt or something. So it may have even been, like, a quickie like that. But, yes, Urban Outfitters actually sold that same shirt Probably about maybe 10 years ago. Hmm. Yes. Well, hey, you got a Pet Sounds shirt from Uniqlo. Ugh. 
But that was licensed. It was licensed. That is actually yeah. licensed. So there's that. Uh, what about the Christmas shirt you just got? That was from a Beach Boys tour. Okay. That oh, but was it was, not, that's right, yeah. That was from a Beach Boys that was, tour. That was tour merch. Um, so it's not like going to the store and buy it merch. No, I got it from Rockabilia, which is a site that uh, carries, like, older, you know, it's kind of a clearinghouse for older tour merchandise that the artist doesn't want to sell on their own site anymore. You know what, let's link that in the show notes. Yeah. But I've found very little, <laughs> actually, the, this is something funny. Probably the best Beach Boys merch I've ever found. And again, this is this was not something... I don't think this was something that was put out by the Beach Boys, by BRI or Brother or whatever. I mean, they did have the permission to do it. Those little cars. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which was in 1999. Because I remember I bought one uh, the same day that I bought my wedding dress. <laughs> Because <laughs> my mom and I went to Target. I was more excited about finding these cars <laughs> than buying my wedding dress. <laughs> but, yeah, they, they there was a series of little die-cast cars, like matchbox cars. And there were different ones done in the style of various albums. Like, there was a Surf and Safari one that yep. was like the pickup truck that's on the cover of that yes. album. There was a... Um, a little deuce coupe, you know, a 1932 coupe. There was a, uh, I think of summer days and summer nights. That was kind of a like mid sixties hot rod. Yeah. There was a pet sounds. And there was one. a pet sounds one that I think was also like a mid sixties car. And the surfer girl one was a Woody and they also, Oh no, wait, was that a Woody? There I don't was, remember. Well, they also made two larger ones that I was able, I think those I was, was what I got at Target because there was something in that series was exclusive to Target. And that was when Target stores were just coming into into central New Jersey. So I was so excited. I think that was the first time I ever went to a Target hmm. store. But there was the the Woody and then like a kind of like a 57 Chevy, I think. And um and they were, I mean, they were nicely done and they were packaged with a little reproduction of the album cover. I don't remember the company that put them out, but they were adorable. And it's like, okay, this is the kind of thing that we would like to have. But I don't think I've seen any such thing since. Yeah, there might have been one. I don't remember for sure, but there might have been something since... Oh, and let's not forget California Dream Barbie. Well, that was before. That was yeah. that was like sometime in the in the eighties, 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 maybe early nineties. Because the, the one, because the one that I got, your mother found, yeah, uh, in a like a vintage shop or something. And it comes with a record credited to the Beach Boys, but it's really just Brian Solo. Yeah, but, of course they could have had just the song Barbie, right? But no. <laughs> That's the whole reason the song was recorded. No. By Kenny and the Cadets. Because yeah. where's Mattel based? <laughs> oh, right. Hawthorne. So it's like, yeah, I could have like decorated my entire house in Beach Boys, but no. No. And something that the thing that I said a while ago that kind of ties into this is that another thing where it's like, what were they thinking? That the Beach Boys, despite 
coming onto the public eye in 1962 did not have an actual logo oh, yeah. until 1976. And that logo was designed by Dean Torrance, right? Yep. Kitty yeah. Hot Graphics did that one. So, and I mean, it's a great logo. I think it works, especially for the 70s. The 70s, yeah. Because it's it's cool, but it still kind of has a little bit of a throwback feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, it has that kind of hot rod style. So, I think it definitely works. But up until then... I, I remember they were seeing, past their prime by the time they got... I remember seeing pictures, like, you know, the Beach Boys performing on stage in the 60s, and Denny's drum head was blank. There's nothing on it. Yeah. Like, that's just weird, because, of course, you had the Beatles that had yep. a very distinct logo. The Doors had a distinct logo. The Who. They, the Monkees, like, again. <laughs> Pretty much from the start, the Who had the Target logo. Yep. Um, and, I mean, Rolling Stones, I don't know when they came out with the uh, Tongue logo, but it was definitely around by the early 70s, if not the 60s. So, you know, the Rolling Stones had something. So, I mean, not all bands had a logo, but a lot of them did. And definitely by early 70s. Yeah. So the Beach Boys were definitely behind the times on that. Yeah, the Birds had a logo. And it's almost like, you know, you want a logo that a kid can easily draw on the cover of their notebook. Yeah, and that was before they had that weird S thing to draw on their notebooks, too. So they could have <laughs> had something. And the thing is, that, yeah, looking at the original Beach Boys logo from 1976, it is obvious that it's from 1976. But... You'll see that on modern Beach Boys products, but it is slightly redesigned, so it's not quite as dated. So they were able to adapt, adapt or adopt, I don't, adapt, adapt it pretty well. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think it's on the Feel Flow set somewhere, and it actually does work, I think. Well, they've kind of taken it, and it's slightly different. Yeah, like, it's still it's the still, same spirit. It's still there, it's just... They've changed it a little bit, but it's still, I still think it works. It's clean, it's simple, but yeah, like, that's kind of strange that there was nothing until the mid-70s. mid Yeah. So, so many what-the-hell-were-they-thinking things happened in the mid-70s. <laughs> oh, I just thought of another one that's not on our list. What? Child of Winter. Oh, you mean putting out a Christmas single, like, the day before Christmas? Like, December 23rd with no promotion whatsoever. And, gee, it was a flop. And they used, yet again, as the B-side, Susie Cincinnati. <laughs> yes, because that is such a Christmas song. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, that was... What the hell were they thinking? Yeah, that that was very poorly executed. And uh, the mid-'70s thing that I was actually thinking of was the two times... They traveled to a non-studio oh, environment boy. to record an album. And I'm not talking concert. For example, traveling to Holland <laughs> to record Holland, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I understand what they were doing, seeing if maybe giving Brian a change of scenery could maybe spark him a little bit. And, of course, we know how that worked. It took a, it took a lot of poking and prodding to get him to even stay in the airplane. He boards the airplane, and then suddenly he's not in his plane, 
but his boarding pass is. And wh- where was he? He was in the, the duty-free lounge or something when they found him. Like, he was, like, curled up asleep yeah. under a couch or something. Yeah. So already you know that there's going to be problem. And what happened? What they, they assembled a mobile recording studio and then dismantled it and then shipped it over to the Netherlands. There's no way that wasn't hella expensive. Well, it was hella expensive. And they also yeah. had a lot of problems with, um, I believe, just uh, differing electrical current. Oh, that, that could and be a problem, yeah. Like, You'd think they would have known about that, given all the world traveling they had done by that time. Yeah, but, but, I mean, it's one thing to have to bring an adapter for your electric razor. It's another thing to have to wire up, like, an entire, what, what were they using by that 16-track recording console? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's, a, it's a slight, yeah, like, I know you can buy those little kits of various plugs that, you yeah. can use on your items when you travel to different countries. I don't think you can buy one of those for a recording console. No, no. <laughs> and really, do they not have recording studios in Amsterdam? Well, they may not have had a 16-track recording. Yeah, I don't know. How about this line of thinking? By that time, they had their own studio in Brian's house. Yeah. So that they could go and record whenever they wanted. They didn't have to book time. They didn't have to juggle other people's schedules. They could record as much as they wanted at any hour of the day or night. Yeah, Brian built that studio because he said, well, if the the inspiration hits, I want to get there immediately. So they probably wanted to replicate that environment and not have to not have to jockey for time with Dutch people. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's probably, they probably wanted to have that kind of freedom and flexibility. Like, oh, we can record whatever we want, and then we can go, you know, go out and look at windmills or something. Yeah. And, and enjoy Holland. And But it turned out to be a much worse it's, idea it in logi- execution. Okay, it was a logistical disaster, but for what it's worth... That's a great album they did over there. Of course, they made great music, but there's a photo that I know I've seen that I maybe you can find it. I cannot find it. It's Carl in the uh, control room of their studio, which was like in a barn or something. Yeah. And he just looks done. (laughs) I mean, he just, you know, keep in mind, Carl wasn't even 30 yet. Yeah. Carl was like, Carl wasn't even 30 years old, and he looked like an old man in the picture. Yeah, Yeah, and that's that's the thing. You had that going on. The Beach Boys were getting homesick. And at that point, they lost Jack Riley. I don't remember if he was... Like, they literally lost him. I mean, (laughs) I don't remember. I want to say that they fired him, but I also heard that he chose to stay behind in Holland because I think he had fallen in love and he wanted to stay with his boyfriend or something, and so he didn't make the trip back to the States. So either way, no more Jack Riley. No more Jack Riley means no more Jack Riley management. Uh, say what you will about his past and his lying about getting a Pulitzer and all that. Who cares? Who cares? Because he did some great stuff for the Beach Boys. Okay, this isn't the picture, but... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's so... It's- yeah, it's, let's let's yeah. link that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we need this picture. <laughs> Good lord! But yeah. and yeah, going to Holland to record an album, 
was logistically a terrible idea, but at least it produced a really great album, unlike the other album that they <laughs> went on location to record. Uh, no, 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 Yet no. another attempt to get Brian to get a little bit more creative spark going. They figured, well, let's see. We went to Holland. Let's go to Iowa. I know a great place, the Maharishi International University in Fairfield. Oh, my. Oh, my. So, who was involved that is, with that? That is the grand poobah of what the hell were they thinking. Good Lord. Yeah, and Carl and Dennis had the, had the wisdom to say, yeah, no. And they stayed the hell away from that d- disaster. Well, even Brian. It was Brian and Mike and Al. That was pretty much it. And I think it was under Al's direction. I think he he's the one we have to thank for that. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Uh bad idea with a terrible terrible result and while we're at it let's also record a christmas album <laughs> oh my goodness yeah it's like did they did they like make some kind of world record for like having stuff rejected <laughs> oh man yeah how many times did sunflower get rejected and holland got rejected and miu got rejected and or what or california well, I, well, well the, merry christmas well, from least, the beach boys well at least the at least Sunflower and Holland still came out. Yeah. The, the Beach Boys 1977 Christmas album never saw release until Ultimate Christmas and in even 1998. Th- and even then, they only took a few of the least bad ones from <laughs> Actually, a couple of those I really, really like. But we already talked about that, I think, back in a much earlier episode. So, yeah, what were they thinking? Yeah, Dennis, Carl, you guys... You had the right idea. You had the right idea. Of course, Dennis's little rant against uh, karma and all this. Wait, what did he say? (laughs) Well, you have a computer open. Can you, like, do a search for Dennis, karma, Mike, and (laughs) MIU? Okay, let's see what I come up with. (laughs) Okay. I hope that the karma will up Mike Love's Meditation Forever. That album is an embarrassment to my life. It should self-destruct. <laughs> I love it. Well, it did. It stalled at 151, which oh. unfortunately was also Sunflower's peak chart position. Yeah, but... Oh. Oh, that's a beautiful quote. I think I'm going to cross it down <laughs> or something. Now, you and Dan Addington should get together and design a t-shirt with that oh, thing man. on it. So. That's beautiful. Yeah. So... Speaking of Dennis and his thoughts on MIU album, why he did not participate. And before anybody says, oh, what about my Diane? Yeah, that song was recorded separately from MIU album and stuck on later. So um, let's, we're not going to get into that. Well, less we say about MIU album, probably the better. That's not the first album that Dennis more or less refused to participate in. And this brings me to another problem Something that the that the Beach Boys did wrong. No Dennis songs on Surfside. Oh, yeah. After it's such a disappointment. After you listen to Sunflower, which had near equal representation, you know, in terms of performing, songwriting, they were all invested in production. I mean, hey, we heard from. Uh, Oh, it was Steve Desper, wasn't it, on on one of the forums saying how, like, around 1969, 1970, Dennis would be the first one to show up. Yeah, I think it was Steve Brian's Desper. At Brian's home studio. Yep. 
and would put in work before the other guys, probably even rolled out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> and to go from him having several outstanding songs to nothing. When you hold up Surf's Up next to Sunflower, the absence of Dennis is glaringly obvious and lacking. That might explain one reason I really don't care much for Surf's Up. There's nothing from Dennis. And probably retroactively looking at it, when we got the feel flow set and heard all that Dennis stuff and just how brilliant it was and just think to yourself, man, this could have been out on something. Well, it's like... I mean, we know know that only, what, 4th of July and... uh, wouldn't it be nice to live again? We're slated for surf stuff, but just hearing... Well, that's still two songs. It's still two songs. For one person. I mean, that's still a fair representation. But it's like... See, the thing that I like about Dennis's material, and I mean, I'm by no means a Denny expert, but it feels like every time I listen to Dennis material, it's not dated. It might be of its time, Like, for instance, the song Constant Companion from Bamboo. I mean, that song, you can tell two seconds in that that song is from 1978. But yet it's good 1978. It's serious 1978. It's quality. Maybe it's, you could say it's a period piece, but it's not, it's not dated the way a lot of the things on Surf's Up feel. Yeah. So I feel like, even if Dennis's work is a product of its time. Do, am I making sense here? I think so. But then, I don't know. I've known you for 23 years, so <laughs> maybe that's why it makes sense to me, because I speak your language. Or maybe it's it's something that it's dated in that it's not timeless. It's not like it could have come out yesterday. Right. But yet it still is quality, where... A lot of the songs on Surf's Up to me just come off as too ripped from the headlines kind of thing. That by mm. a year later, these were not things people were talking about anymore. Or maybe even by the time the album hit the streets, it was like people moved on to other topics. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But it just, that album feels a little too 1971 to me. Yeah, and I... I I don't want to go off on why I don't like Surf's Up. If you Well, I don't dislike it. It's just, eh, I think it's overrated. And if you want to know why, listen to Chapter 37 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I have to promote my other podcasts here, so here we go. But it's just mind-blowing when you look at the back catalog of Dennis songs from that time. And we could have had two of them. We could have had two of them on Surf's Up, but... I, I think the gen- what, what the general agreed upon story is that there was essentially a pissing contest and Dennis took his toys and went home. Well, yeah, right? and also yeah. Dennis was, I think, starting the work on what eventually became Pacific Ocean Blue. Yeah, what evolved into it, yeah. at least. Yeah, but he, Dennis already had his sights on doing a solo album. Not necessarily yeah. leaving the Beach Boys. Well, right, he just right. wanted to do his own record because he was becoming more invested in songwriting yeah. and producing and having kind of picking up the baton from Brian. You yeah. know, where Brian, it feels like if there were no Beach Boys, Brian still would have been producing things. And Dennis, I think, kind of was in that same vein. Hmm. And it's interesting how. 
that I don't want to say trend, but that occurrence also happened with Beach Boys in concert. Not a single song written or sung by Dennis on that album. But yet he's on the cover. He's the only Beach Boy <laughs> on the cover. So go, and it's not like they didn't perform any of Dennis's songs because they did only with you during the tour that, the, or at least yeah. one of the tours that that album covers. And man, why didn't they leave it in? But I mean, it's still a great concert album, I will oh, say. Yeah. But could it also be that the other people in the Beach Boys camp? I'm not saying just the other performing members, but management and other sure. people, even up to, you know, Murray, maybe they didn't take Dennis seriously. Mm. Maybe they didn't see Dennis as somebody with tremendous amount of potential. And I mean, as I have said many times, he might have had as much, if not more, musical aptitude mm -hmm. than Brian. The fact that Brian is nearly entirely self-taught, with the exception of you know some high school music classes. Which, and accordion lessons on a toy accordion. Yeah, when he was, what, four? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's really something. I, you might have hit on something there about how Dennis might have been ignored, because what, did he ever have an A-side on a single? No. I don't think so. Wait, in, in, terms know, of, in terms of what he actually wrote. Oh, I'm okay. Saying. As opposed to just I don't think he had an A. I think he, was only, he only had B sides. Mm -hmm. He had never learned not to love, cuddle up. Yeah. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of other things. But, but. It's, it's just, I mean, he was. I think he was always underestimated because he was, which part of it is his own doing, that he was sure. always rebellious and kind of the bad boy and... Not somebody who ever could sit still for very long, but it might be that even his own brothers didn't look at him as... Because he, he didn't even finish high school, right? Didn't he get expelled from... Didn't he? I don't... Yeah, I don't... I keep, I keep hearing that... Or he, or he dropped out I know I heard that he either... Yeah, he either dropped out or was expelled and never finished because that was probably about the time the Beach Boys were starting to really get going. So... He didn't finish school the way Carl did, you know, where Carl went to the professional children. Like, Carl didn't graduate from Hawthorne. No. He went to the uh, professional school and finished that way. But Dennis, I think a lot of people may have underestimated him. Well, maybe they should have estimated yeah, him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that might have been kind of even part of his downfall, that there weren't enough people who had his back. Like, he had enough in him to want to try these things and do these things. But did he have the support that, say, Brian had or Carl? Maybe not from the Beach Boys, but from his other people, like probably Greg Jacobson. Oh, friends, yeah. Or is it, friends. Would it be Jacobson or Jacobson? I'm not, sure. J -A I'm not sure. But, oh, I mean, definitely yeah. his friends. Yeah. But, I mean, did Murray ever take him seriously as a musician? Hmm. That's another question. Which, I mean, I mean, Murray, I think, had a level of respect for Brian, whether it was ever admitted or not, just because how could he not? Yeah. <laughs> Probably also crossed with a lot of jealousy that Brian was able to achieve success that Murray never could. I mean, Murray tried to cut it as a songwriter and write a hit song. He couldn't do that, but Brian could mm -hmm. and did many times over. Yeah. So, I mean, Murray, I think, respected Brian, but 
he was also very jealous of him. Did he ever have that kind of, those kinds of feelings about Dennis? Probably not. Mm. So, I mean, did Dennis ever fully see himself as somebody who had the potential for success? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And there may have been moments like when he made Pacific Ocean Blue, something made him put such a great album together. Yep. But it wasn't a success. It wasn't a commercial success. Yeah, it was a critical success. Yeah. But even like going back to Constant Companion, I mean, the first time I heard that, which was on the Beach Boys channel, I'm thinking this, for that time, for 1978, he could have been the musical guest on Saturday Night Live performing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It would have fitted. It would have sounded so perfect. It would have been amazing. Hey, Paul Schaefer would have loved to have done it, too. Oh, my God. What else do we have on our... Well, speaking of MIU... Oh, no. Because the M in MIU stands for... The Maharishi. So, yeah, we had in 1967, the Beatles got heavily involved with the Maharishi and followed him to uh, Rishikesh, India, to study meditation at his place there, his compound, camp, whatever you call it, along with a lot of other notable people, such as uh, Donovan Mm -hmm. and um, Prudence, well, Mia Farrow and her sister. Oh, Mia was there too? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, she went, because I think that was, because, you know, this was early 1968, and I think that's when her, uh, she had just um, divorced Frank Sinatra Hmm. and just kind of needed to get away. Yeah. So Prudence was already heavily into uh, meditation, and Mia decided to go with her. Hmm. So they were there, and and Mike Love went there. Yeah. And you know, it was kind of a big thing. And the Beatles created a lot of the music that they eventually put on the White Album. And Abbey Road. But they all. I think got kind of disillusioned by the whole thing, not by meditation itself. Yeah. They all saw value in meditation. Yeah. And even the, you know, I think meditation in general and also the TM technique of yeah. meditation. Yeah, that's how McCartney got through his prison sentence yeah. in Japan. He said, I just remembered my TM and I just practiced that and that's what got me through it. But I think they were, you know, disillusioned for various reasons and they all left. Rishikesh at different times. I know Ringo left because he was allergic to everything and wasn't really having a good time. Paul wasn't, at the time, not very invested in meditation, so he left with Jane Asher. And then John and George were the last ones to leave. And and we were talking about this, like, I think there were a variety of things, maybe just realizing that the Maharishi wasn't quite the holy man that they thought he was and of course my favorite story is i think it's in may pang's book oh no it was in pete shotton's book i think Mm -hmm. when uh john introduced the maharishi to magic alex and alex said oh i remember you i met you uh in greece in 1959 and the maharishi said no no i've i've never been to greece i've only been to india and england and and he pulled John aside and said, John, this guy's a fraud. I I know I met this guy in Greece, and he was using a different name. <laughs> and what was it? John's parting shot to the Maharishi? Yeah. Like, 
Because he was like, why are you leaving? And John's like, well, if you're so cosmic, you should know. I think he said, if you're so friggin' cosmic, yeah. <laughs> is the actual words, I and, think. Uh, and, of course, uh, alternate lyrics to Sexy Satan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think we should. No, because they don't have to bleep it, and we already yeah. have enough to bleep. So, so yeah, I mean, by early 68, the Beatles in generally were distancing themselves from the Maharishi. Because I think also they felt that the Maharishi was using them, like exploiting mm. the connection to promote his own interests. And the Beatles were not cool with that. But Mike Love was still devoted to the Maharishi as he... Still is, heard. really. Yeah, I mean, really, he still... And I and again, I don't fault anybody for. I mean, you know, I practice meditation myself, not the TM version, but I don't fault anybody for finding fulfillment in that practice because it can be great benefit to your life. But it's one thing to practice meditation; it's another thing to have devotion to a guru who may not be on the up and up. And they had the wonderful idea of. Having the Maharishi open for the Beach Boys. He closed for oh, them. Clo- oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. The Beach that Boys would... open for him. Yeah, like <laughs> Beach Boys performed, then everybody left. And they're like, wait a minute, no, no. <laughs> and I remember in Mike's book, he said that another problem was that the Maharishi refused to be microphoned. Yeah. And he had And nobody this... could hear it. Those who did stay couldn't hear him. He had kind of this like high pitch voice, like yeah. his voice. He did not have a booming theatrical voice. No. We take a specific thought which suits us, which is called the mantra, or a suitable sound for us, which we receive from the trained teacher. I think there were only a handful of dates that actually happened on this tour. Yeah, it wasn't... Yeah, they, they canceled at least the Maharishi part really early on. Yeah, because they were... They hardly sold any tickets... And Bruce's and, famous quote was like something like that tour made money only for the florists or something. I thought Al said that. I think Al said that. Uh, I want to say that's Al's Al's quote that, yeah, because they the stage had to be like covered in flowers, in yeah. fresh flowers. And I, I just think like kind of basically being a shill for the Maharishi period was kind of a bad decision. I mean, nothing wrong with practicing it and all that, but when you're basically using your music. To say, hey, we love Maharishi and all that, you're kind of going to turn people off. And especially when the Beatles had already kind of publicly <laughs> shoved the Maharishi aside. I mean, there were still plenty of plenty of celebrities out there to this day who practice TM. We were talking about this, how it's one thing to practice TM, but it's another thing to actually bring this whole thing into your art and... That's going to turn people off. Well, yeah. You know, when I was in yoga teacher training, they would they would call it getting to woo. Because, like, when you are teaching a yoga class, there are people who are going to be there who might have a very strong interest in Indian culture and Hindu faiths, and they, would, they want to know the Sanskrit terminology. Like, they... They want to learn more about it and be more invested in that, which is fine. But then there are also people who might not want that. They just go to yoga for the physical practice and they don't want 
the, you know, because it might go against their own personal religion or they, you, like, you just kind of want to stay off of the woo, <laughs> you know, getting, getting too into some other kind of spirituality that people may not be there for. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the problem with the Maharishi and the Tia. I mean, even though that was his movement. Donovan used Maharishi teaching in his lyrics all, all the time, but it's, he's not flat out saying, I love Maharishi. He's, he's just saying the actual teachings. Well, yeah. But you have things like TM song, Maharishi <laughs> gave it to me. And oh my God. <laughs> I still love that song. Though. I can't stand that song. I can't stand. Oh no! I actually no. Wait, that song, TM song. You mean the one from Fifteen Bigs? Yes. All right, that one cracks me up. I can't stand transcendental. Oh my god! Meditation. You people and your and your transcendental meditation hatred. You people are so you don't get it. You just do not get it. Yeah, I don't, and I don't want it. It is one of Brian's most brilliant things, and I'll talk about that another time, because yeah. we're here talking about disasters. Yeah, but that tour was a <laughs> just very bad timing and very bad thinking that, like, not not reading the room and understanding what your fans Yeah, ex- that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get to. I might not have really expressed it that, that well. Now, speaking of these tours and what was happening at the time, do you think that pulling out of Monterey was a what the hell were they thinking? No. I okay, think. next topic. Oh, that's it? <laughs> that's it. Well, I mean, yeah, a lot of people think, well, man, that was, the, that was a huge... I think it that was a huge. Been. That was a huge event in pop culture. Why they backed out of it? We, the, I, I think there have been several different reasons provided as to why they backed out. For one thing... Again, going back to Mike's book, Mike said that Carl was the one who basically begged everybody, let's pull out of this because I'm afraid I'm going to get arrested. Yeah, because he was was resisting the draft. But the thing is, he had already gotten arrested, though. So I I don't know. I don't know. But, no, I just think, especially for what Monterey is remembered for and what happened there yeah. in terms of that it was very cutting edge and you had bands who were already known but yet they presented things that were new yeah. and you had Jimi Hendrix and well really but Monterey is kind of what introduced the who to the U.S. audience, right? Like kind of, sort of. I mean, that was the first real impact they had yeah. in the U.S. They, they, it was a Grateful Dead. Big Brother and the Holding Company was just getting recognition. Yeah, and I just feel like if the Beach Boys had gone out there in their striped shirts and done even even more current stuff, yeah, it would not have gone over. I mean, I'd like to think that what should have happened... And I don't know if this would have worked, but I think this is the only thing that would have made sense. If Brian had put himself out there as his own name, like Brian Wilson Presents or something, and it would be Music from Smile, Hmm. where you have basically a super group of wrecking crew people with members of the Beach Boys as the singers. Hmm. And 
that may have blown everything out of the water, hmm. especially if he had like the Sid Sharp strings, yeah. if he had Julius Wechter on vibes, if he had saxes and horns and flutes, and if he had like everything, like a whole stage of people playing smile music, because that that stuff is <laughs> talk about psychedelic. Yeah. I mean, that may have made people sit up and take notice, but it could not have gone out there under the Beach Boys name. Hmm. And I mean, it may have been possible because it wasn't the Beach Boys on the Monterey Board of Directors or whatever it the was. Board of Governors. Board of Governors. It was Brian, Brian. Wilson. Mm-hmm. Brian was already somebody who had clout in that world. And I think he could have put himself out there because especially since that music is so different than what people at that time associated with the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. Like, they would have been like, oh man, who's this Brian Wilson dude? And it's like, oh yeah, he's like the Beach Boys guy, but look at what he's doing now. Yeah. I think that's the only way it could have happened. But instead, Brian goes to Hawaii with the Beach Boys. Now, this is something that I'm stealing from the Ceylon podcast. The guys on Ceylon talked about how the reason that the Hawaii shows sounded like they did was because Brian wanted them to sound similar to the same kind of pulled-back sound that Smiley Smile had. He had Dennis pull a couple of drums off of his kit, which is why it sounds like Dennis is just going, doom, doom, because that's pretty much all he was able to do. Even listening to the released version that came out as on uh, Sunshine Tomorrow 2, I think, or was it live? So one of the Sunshine compilations... Much better than the bootlegs, I think, but still, there's something just not right about that sound. So that was and that was probably a bad idea, the whole, what Brian did for the Hawaii shows. I don't know where these guys are getting their information from, because we read the same books that they read, and I don't remember seeing that much detail. But that, and then that kind of contributed to the Don't Wake the Baby sound that the Beach Boys continued to mm-hmm. do in concert in, the six, in 1967. Yeah. Until they got some more backup musicians, but yeah. I mean, it was also just, I think Brian was kind of, Brian had lost his cool in some ways. And I don't know, and I mean, I'm not blaming LSD. Sure. I mean, probably, if anything, it would be more his own mental issues, his own battling voices in his head that probably blew his confidence to where he wouldn't have even considered putting a set of smile music out there performed by basically the people who did it. Yeah. Because there is no way that the Beach Boys as they were at that time, because this was before, this was just before they really ramped up their touring act. Yeah. So they didn't have the support musicians that they had as little as a year later. Yeah. I mean, we know, you know, we have the recording of the debut of Good Vibrations at the University of Michigan in 1966. And even that was way scaled down from what it could be. Yeah. And that could have made a difference that maybe Smile could have been released and not been just something in the shadow of 
Sergeant Pepper, but it was not meant to be. Yeah. And I mean, of course, the argument will always be that, uh, or not the argument, but kind of the realization that Smile was not meant to come out back then. Smile was meant to be when it was, especially because it could be on one consistent CD where we didn't yep. have to worry about flipping records over. Unless you get the vinyl. And it could be three movements. Yep. Not two. Mm-hmm. Like we all thought. Yeah. So before we get any further down the smile rabbit hole, what what else do we have on our... Oh, yes. Oh, no. Acting. Oh, God. The Beach Boys, with the possible exception of Mike... No, I'm going to say the definite exception without Mike, pers- for my, my personal opinion. And also Dennis... Okay, it's like, okay, here, let me, let's do the defenses first. Okay. Mike is a born tumbler. Mike is meant to be, he is, he can be out there. He can carry an audience. Yeah, he's a good front man. He's a good front man. And he he knows how to talk. Yes. Like, he is somebody who is definitely comfortable with public speaking. I mean, even, you know, we use the example of um, the little sketch from the Jack Benny show. Mike was fine in that. <laughs> he was. And Dennis in, you know, Dennis was actually in a movie. Dennis was in Tulane Blacktop. Granted, he had like five lines in the whole movie because everybody only had like five lines I mean, in the whole movie. I mean, but yeah. he but he looked amazing. And he was he even acting. He was pretty much playing himself. He'd play he'd say like one line and then he'd go have sex with somebody. Or he'd like mess he'd tinker with a car. Yeah. <laughs> but Dennis could have had a career in movies because even if he's not good at acting, he looked amazing. <laughs> but the rest of them yeah. <laughs> yeah. The rest. Okay. The rest of them. They they sound like they're reading, which is exactly what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, oh, man. not just the Jack Benny thing, but everything else. Oh my goodness. Like what else? Because I there's other things that I've always avoided. Oh, like I'm gonna wait till you swallow your water, because I don't want to spit take all over all right. this stuff. What? Another example that I present <laughs> in the '80s, Brian. On the new Leave It to Beaver, playing Mr. Hawthorne, oh, Kip's yeah. teacher. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Haskell? I was just explaining to our new classmate how you really brought history to life for me. Cut the bull, Pucky, and give me the note, huh? Oh, for one thing, I just have to say this. First of all, Brian looked a lot like Guy Patterson in that—it's that, not sketch, but in that scene—and. Eric Osmond, who played Eddie Haskell's son, Freddie, dead ringer for 1964 Dennis, complete with a striped shirt. It was freaky. But Brian's acting, no, no, no. He was cl- he was clearly reading off of a cue card or a prompter or something. Why do people keep putting Brian in things? And Duck Dodgers. And I think, I think it was 2005. Oh, man. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm Brian Wilson. What matters is that you believe in yourself. So, what are you doing here? I often appear as a sort of spiritual advisor to surfers in need. And just really TV appearances in general, just not, I don't think it's a good idea for the Beach Boys. Ho- no. uh, home Improvement, ugh. But, okay, Home Improvement, I'm going to have to blame partly on the Home Improvement writers because some of that dialogue was just so freaking dippy. The way they wrote it, I guess, is like, okay, every time the Beach Boys speak, 
a different one is going to say something. Or, or you think back even just um, that American Bandstand from '64 uh, when, uh, <laughs> yeah, like when uh, Dick Clark asks, like, "So what's up next?" and they all look at Brian <laughs> because, well, Brian, tell him. <laughs> Yeah, and speaking of American Bandstand, flash forward to 1981 when they're promoting Beach Boys Medley. Oh, good lord. Oh, man. That's a disaster of epic proportions. Uh, It starts off with Brian, 1981 Brian, all all fat and greasy and everything, sitting at a piano, lip-syncing to Carl's part in Good Vibrations, because Carl was off doing his solo stuff. And Dennis is just, like, clubbing at the drums, because he was... Bad off and he was it. he was almost falling off the, the riser. Yeah, oh, and I really do think that after that, because you only see that in the very beginning. I think they realized, oh god, okay, yeah, yeah, the guy at the piano don't show him any more close up. Oh, the drummer, no, no, let's not show the drummer anymore. Yeah, they just kind of kept the camera on like Mike and Alan. Bruce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of TV appearances. I'm not saying all. There not are all some of them, good of course, ones, but yeah. there's. We've seen some really bad ones. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And that full house. <laughs> well, that's another. I that's never another. watched that show in my life. I, I didn't watch it either. I just happened to be channel surfing one day, and I see Mike and Bruce and Uncle Jesse sitting around singing forever. And I'm like, oh, they're actually acknowledging this song? And Jesse says, oh, I wish I could write it. I'd love to be able to write a song like forever. And then Bruce says, you want it? You can have it. And I was so ragingly, oh, my. Ugh. Anyway, let's let's right. set about that. Now, here's another topic that's kind of like, what do you think of this? Brian's Back from 1976. Wow. Yeah. I think part of me wants to say it was good on paper, but... I'm not, I really don't know. I really don't I mean, know so much. kind of my thinking is, I mean, I'm assuming that they mean, you know, that Brian was back touring since he hadn't toured in more than a decade with the Beach Boys except for one-off dates here yeah, and there. Yeah, he did a few dates in 65, a few in 70. And I mean, and, it yeah. may, you know, it's also, I think, kind of Brian's back producing and making music again after several years of nothing. Yeah. Or almost nothing. And the whole, like, Brian spending all of his time in bed, that's an image that was really not quite true Yeah, I think he addressed that in Long Promised Road. Because, I mean, mean, Brian had ups and downs, but, I mean, he was... It was really once Murray died that I think he really just shut down. Yeah. I just feel like they were exploiting Brian. You know, especially somebody going through a lot of personal struggles. He had been through time with Landy. He had improved. He had he was doing healthier things. He had start was was losing weight. But it was kind of like, oh, he's all better now. And no, he wasn't. Yeah, I, I like. I, I think it was kind of almost cruel to shove him back into the spotlight when he may not have been ready for that at all. Yeah, I'm curious to hear from people who were there, like who remember those times, who saw Brian in 1976, and what and what people thought about him mm-hmm. when they see here's this. Well, 
he might not have been all that huge at the time because he had already been doing some image improvement and stuff. But here comes this guy bearded and who sounds like an ashtray mm-hmm. and who's kind of not all there, well, really. Well, it was, granted, it was 1976. A lot of people That's, sounded like ashtrays. That is true. That is true. <laughs> and a lot of people, you know, a lot of men were going around showing their hairy chests. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is true. So, I mean, it may not have been as noticeable as it is now to us looking back from the perspective of time. And also, we're looking at the back as a couple of people who who came of age when things like mental health were looked at a, a lot differently from how they were looked at in the 70s. So we have this hindsight of saying, of thinking, oh my God, was this a good thing to do for Brian? Well, Maybe in the 70s mindset, it very well may have been. Yeah, I mean, the treatment of mental health issues has come a long way, even in the past decade. Yeah, and then that horrible, horrible song that sadly saw release in 1998 that was recorded during that time called Brian's Back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, remember how you kept it un- unreleased? Oh, yeah, that was a good idea. That was a good yeah. idea. <laughs> and something else that should have been kept unreleased, the Summer in Paradise album. Oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. See, uh, all right, Summer in Paradise to me is the Beach Boys version. we got to talk about the monkeys again. It was their pool it. When it's basically all computers, like hardly any real instruments, and they're trying to sound modern. They're trying to sound contemporary. I hereby offer this challenge to Mike Love. Write a song that does not involve the words still, (laughs) summer... Surfing, I think you get my point. Yeah. And that's pretty much what that album was. And to desperately, desperately try to make people remember that they're Brian Wilson's group, they throw in a remake of Surfing so they can have his name in the credits. And, of course, that stupid John Stamos version of Forever. And I have to tell this story. Some people who, who are listening who may have known me a while have heard this story. I think it was 2009. I was at work. I had my iPod on. We were all listening to our music with speakers and, and stuff and nobody cared. And I had my iPod and shuffle and forever from Sunflower came up and I overheard one of my co-workers kind of humming along to it. And I said, you know this song? And she said, yeah, it's the Beach Boys, right? I said, yeah. Once again, you know this song? She said, yeah, I remember it from Full House. <sighs> it's been years since I've spoken to this person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody would release it, which is why they had to release it themselves. It only sold, what, a thousand copies-ish? I paid a dollar for mine, and I feel I was overcharged. It does have one redeeming factor, and what is that redeeming factor? Very pretty artwork. Yep, the artwork is inversely proportional to the... Yeah, I remember my boyfriend at the time, we had had some kind of conflict... And he bought it for me as a peace offering. I didn't hold it against him because I appreciated the sentiment. It's not his fault that the album is trash. Yeah. (laughs) And I think I told this mini story before, but it's worth mentioning again how when uh, our friend Jeff, may he rest in peace, first joined PSML, which is still active, by the way, (laughs) he was 19 years old. 
and he was calling himself Jeffy because he figured that given that he was only 19, he was just a little kid compared to everybody else on the list. And he said, I love the Summer in Paradise album. I, it's one of the it's one of two Beach Boys albums I own. And I just love this group so much. And it's like, oh, dude. And I remember somebody responded, somebody send this kid a copy of Sunflower. Yeah, really. But he said, hey, I can't help it. I love Summer in Paradise. Well, another bad album idea. I Again, something that was probably a good idea on paper. Stars and Stripes, Volume 1. Oh, goodness. Never, ever, kids, never, ever... Oh, Call yeah. your album Volume 1. Wait till Volume 2 comes out. Then you can go back and call it Volume yeah, 1. Yeah, calling it Volume 1 guarantees there won't, won't be there a Volume won't be 2. There will be a Volume 2. Just ask Traveling Wilburys. What was their next album? Volume 3. Volume 3. So, or how yeah. George Michael put out Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. There yeah. was never a Volume 2. It's kind of like calling something the first annual. Yeah. That guarantees it'll be the last annual. <laughs> but, man, and... <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe if you like country music, you might find it enjoyable, but I don't know about that, because something that I... Well, for one thing, I don't think the album sold very well. It sold better than Summer in Paradise. I think it actually charted, unlike Summer in Paradise. But I was going through the list of artists, and most of the country artists that they were performing with, they had pretty much already peaked, and they were either washed up or just not really doing much. Because I was going through most of these, I, I looked through these artists' discography and saw that after Stars and Stripes, they didn't have any more hits for a lot of these people. There are a couple of exceptions that, to this observation I'm making, because you had Willie Nelson. I mean, who, who can argue ever that Willie Nelson was not great before and was not great after? That's something he's never going to lose. Uh, but you look at, say, Lori Morgan. I don't think she had any any other hits after that. Mm-hmm. James House, I don't think. I think the one act... I, th- there are a few acts that were on that album who did continue to have some hits, but the thing is they had already been well-established for a, quite a number of years. Sawyer Brown, for example, that group had been around a long time. They had a way to consistently knock out some hits, and they still kept doing it, but they had already been long firmly established. But the newer ones that the guys were working with, not so much. And not only that, but it's supposed to be a country-themed album. Two of the artists they were working with weren't even country artists. Kathy Tricoli was contemporary Christian, and Timothy B. Schmidt was from the Eagles. And Poco. I just can't listen to that album, partly because I don't like country music. I do like the Caroline No arrangement they did with Timothy B. Schmidt. That was pretty cool. And, of course, there were a couple of things that didn't make it to the album, like In My Room with uh, Tammy Wynette was left off for whatever reason. And I don't know if they ever actually recorded it, but we know that they rehearsed Sail on Sailor with Rodney Crowell. But that album was a disaster. It didn't go anywhere. And kind of the last in the trilogy of albums that were a disaster and didn't go anywhere, Stack of Tracks. The first Beach Boys album to not chart. Yep. I think Summer in Paradise was the only other Beach Boys album to not chart. I mean, it's a nice idea of having an album of just the backing tracks and providing sheet music. Yeah. Nowadays, people flip out over it. But well, the thing back is... Then, 
it was kind of ahead of its time and it didn't really find an audience. And yeah. by that time, Capital also was not doing, you know, Capital's promotion of the Beach Boys was very erratic by that point. Yeah, and also the thing is, an album like Stack of Tracks is meant for the deep, intense fans. How many fans did the Beach Boys really have in 1968 still? Well, the yeah. thing is, I don't think the deep, intense fans weren't by what we would consider deep. I mean, you had people who listened to Beach Boys records and liked hearing them when they drove around in their cars and things like that. But you didn't have kind of the level of navel-gazing that I think developed once the smile bootlegs started hitting the scene. So not until probably the 80s that you really had people kind of on a higher level of interest in the Beach Boys, and especially Brian's music. Like, I just don't think it's something that people in the 60s really thought about unless they were actually studying music. Yeah. And they maybe had an interest in analyzing Beach Boys music on an academic level. But that probably wasn't very many people. Yeah. And even a bigger disaster with Stack of Tracks. When it was reissued on CD in 1990 and 2001, it was just basically the album with the artwork, and that was it. It didn't have the tablatures or whatever they used. I don't remember mm-hmm. if it was tablatures, sheet music, or <laughs> didn't have the printed lyrics. The liner notes said, yeah, too small to reproduce. But I think the 1994 reissue had it. Yes. Because, yeah, I, I never saw it myself, but when I was when I saw that single CD in the store, it obviously had a staple booklet for the liner instead of just the single card like all the rest of them did. So I'm yeah. confident that that must have been the case. Yeah. And another problem with Stack of Tracks, when it was first released, the stereo version was not stereo. It was duophonic. I don't know why. I don't know why. I've not listened to our vinyl copy yet that we've had for 20-some years that we were able to score. But at least on the, uh, the 1990 CD reissue, some of the tracks, you can actually hear the vocals bleed through. Hmm. And at the end of Little St. Nick, the vocals are, like at the very end, come full blast. Oh. I don't know if that was on the original hmm. thing or if that was screwed up in the remastering or what. We might have to check that out. Yeah, it's too bad we're 1,700 miles away yeah. from our records. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, it was a good idea on paper, maybe. And Carl probably had the best of intentions when he selected the list, but... But once again, we have to just ask, what What the the hell hell were they they thinking? So is that it? Yes. Wow. I think that's a lot. And I'm sure we could come up with more, but that's enough for now. Yeah. I mean, if if you you all listening have any any other thoughts as to what they did that was wrong, hey, let us us know. Uh, Just keep on listening. You'll hear our email address and other contact info, but... Hey, that was it. And once again, Happy New Year. I hope it's a Happy New Year for you all. So we'll be back with another episode next month. And uh, until then, bye. This is Sean and Lisa. Thank you for listening to the TuneX Podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, 
Google Podcasts, and just about every other provider out there. If TuneX isn't on your favorite provider, please let us know. You can email us at tunexpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the show notes, is tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B and then the number four and then I-T. Feel free to connect with us on social media. TuneX is on Facebook and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, both under the handle of TuneX Podcast. Our opening and closing theme, Melody 10, was written and performed by Scattered Frog. All other music and sounds used in this episode remain the properties of their respective copyright holders and are used for the purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. We'll see you next time, folks. Until then, don't Don't back back down down from from that that wave. wave. We recorded inside so we could avoid the noises from the street. Here we go, so... You know what, that's uh, that's the sound of someone who's going to get laid tonight. No, they're not.